Good morning, beloved. Uh, we have made it. We have made it to the end of the year. Uh, Christmas is upon us. Um, but it's, uh, do you know Ted Lasso? Okay. Well, if you don't know Ted Lasso, um, there's no judgment if you do or you don't. But if you don't know Ted Lasso, um, Ted Lasso was an American football coach. Um, this is a show. American football coach who went to Europe to coach European football. And um, if you didn't catch that, he just totally changed sports. Um, so he is now coaching what in America we call soccer. And um, this is like at the professional level. And so he's with this club. And, and it's just it's a comedic thing where he doesn't really know the sport. He doesn't know the culture or anything. And so he's just kind of this like kind of Southern American who's just clashing with everything. But it's, it's a lot of fun. It's exciting. But there comes this point where he's in a pub um, with a couple of his colleagues and the coaching staff. And they're up against a game, against a team, where it seems that everyone is just fully convinced they're going to get destroyed. And so he's talking to his colleagues, and they just, they're, just, they're downcast and all this stuff. And he's like, what's the deal? And they're like, hey, it's the hope that kills you. Like, don't get your hopes up. It's the hope that kills you. And maybe you know that from um, the, the addiction community, or just, uh, that's, that's a phrase that's used a lot. It's the hope that kills you. And so um, Ted Lasso doesn't like that. And so the next day, in the pregame talk, he walks into the locker room, and all the players look like they've already lost the game. They're just so downcast, dejected, and all this stuff. And so he has this stirring pregame talk where he tells them, you know, I don't like this phrase, it's the hope that kills you. I think it's the lack of hope that kills you. And the whole team like lights up and they're like, yeah, we're ready to go to war now and all this stuff. Um, we're all putting our hope in something. Every one of us. We are putting our hope in something. Uh, Christian apologist Douglas Gruthers, he says it like this. He says, for all our cynicism that we are, at the end of the day, we're inescapably creatures of hope inescapably. We are creatures of hope. We are all putting our hope in something. Uh, psychiatrist and Holocaust survivor Viktor Frankl, famously, you know, actually an active part of the Holocaust. And, and he made all these observations, and he pointed out that uh, between Christmas of 1944 and New Year's of 1945, that week, between Christmas 1944 and New Year's 1945, in that week, more people died in the camp than any of the weeks prior. So there wasn't like an outbreak of some new disease. There wasn't like increased, just more difficult working conditions. Like it was actually the same. And so you say, why? Why did so many people die? And he says, the majority of prisoners had lived in the naive hope that they would be home again by Christmas. Just the fact that they made it in this camp under such terrible conditions. And they were so hoping and believing that we'd be out by Christmas and then Christmas comes, and we're still here, and their bodies just start shutting down in greater number than ever before. We're all putting our hope in something. And so, is it the hope that kills you? Or as Ted Lasso says, is it the lack of hope that kills you? And I would actually argue it's not either of those. I think it's misplaced hope. Um, because we are all creatures of hope. We must be putting our hope in something, but I think that often what kills us is misplaced hope. And so as we step into Advent, um, we're talking first about hope. But what is hope? I mean, it's kind of a, it's a broad word, right? What is hope? Um, giddy children, eyeing up the trees under uh, the, the gifts that are amassing under that tree in this season. And one of them looks at the other and says, are you getting everything on your list? I hope so. I hope so. Terrified parents. You're watching your firstborn. Do you remember that? I'll never forget that. Like you don't sleep at all. The first time that they get really sick. You're just like, all night, you're just watching. Like, are they breathing? 
You're just watching. And that mom looks at dad and says, do you think her breathing improved? And dad says, I hope so. Or it's that hangry afternoon text to your wife. Can we have tacos tonight? I hope so. (laughs) Or maybe it's the battered survivor in a refugee camp watching the news in a language that they don't even understand, trying to make sense of it and saying, is the war finally ending? I hope so. The hope, to hope something can be so whimsical or silly, so trivial, or can be so deep, so profoundly felt. It's such a broad word. Um, But to define it, a hope is a feeling of expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen. And we step into Advent, launching today, this season. Advent is this Latin word that means coming or arrival. And so um, in, in the Christian tradition, Advent is a season that most of us would just know as the Christmas season. But what we're doing in this season is we're looking at the arrival of Christ, the Messiah, our Savior, our Rescuer, God himself, God the Son, stepping into human flesh, born of a virgin. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas, but we're in this season of Advent because we're longing for his coming. And it's actually this reality that we're longing for his return now. That it's not just that he has come, but that he's coming again. And so we can be honest in this season that it's full of rejoicing and the hope that we have that God has come to save us, Emmanuel, God with us. And yet it's also this deep longing, this yearning for him to come back and make all things new. And so we sing songs full of joy, but we also sing songs that say, please come, Lord. Come, Lord Jesus. Because things are not yet what they should be. As we live in this already not yet, this tension of being between two advents. And so um, we are keeping our annual tradition. Uh, We call it a tradition, but this is the first time we're four years old, and so we're finally making it back that um, we'll start a gospel with Christmas, and then we'll end that gospel with Easter and then uh, Mission Sunday following that. So if you will turn with me, we are back to Matthew. Um, Were any of you here for Matthew the first time? Yeah? You're so quiet. I would love to hear you. (laughs) Matthew chapter 1. We're in Matthew chapter 1. Um, so as we go through this, uh, you know, our, our, normal, our normal flow through a, a book of scripture is to go every single line. But as we go through these gospels, because we're on rotation, um, we'll focus in. Um, but for this Christmas season, we'll be in the first couple of chapters. Um, today, look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 17 with me. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 1, verse 17 will also be on the screen behind me. This is what it says. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David until the exile to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the exile to Babylon until the Messiah, 14 generations. And so if you have delved into this very much, um, this, this just comes after a, a list of a genealogy. There's a historical record of families. And Matthew has skipped different things. Like, not everyone is included in this list. So you can't take that list and say, like, we can figure out how long... It's been since Abraham, all this stuff. Like, um, he's, he's doing this in a way that's meaningful and pointing things out. And then he gives this kind of summary statement in verse 17 where he takes all that information and gives kind of shape to it. And he says, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David until the exile to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the exile to Babylon until the Messiah, 14 generations. And so he's kind of taking us on a journey. And today, I want us to step into that journey together and see what he's trying to show us as he presents to us who Jesus is. Because look at the next verse with me. Um, I I don't know this will be on the screen, but verse 18, the birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. The, the, The arrival of the Messiah, this is Jesus as we know him. And so what is he trying to show us 
in this genealogy as he leads up to this. So it starts with all the generations from Abraham. And so who is Abraham? We come to Abraham and we think, okay, Abraham was Abram who lived in the land of Ur of the Chaldeans. And so God shows up to Abram and he calls him out, ultimately changes his name to Abraham, but he tells him, you're gonna leave here. You're gonna leave all of what you know here. I'm gonna lead you into a new nation that you will possess and you will become a nation. He's like, well, I'm kind of an old guy. Like, I'm past childbearing years. Me and my wife, we're, we're getting older. But he believes him. He believes him and that belief, that faith is counted as righteousness. And so God leads Abram, Abraham into this new place known as Palestine or Israel as we call it. And so he has come to this new land. His descendants ultimately become the nation of Israel. And so you have this beautiful promise given to Abraham that he was once childless, but you will be the father of a nation. And so this promised seed to Abraham will actually throw our minds back to another promised seed. You go back into Genesis 3.15, it's called the Proto-Evangelium. And this is this idea that as Adam and Eve have rebelled, we have fallen. Humanity has fallen, we have sinned, we have rebelled, and so we've been separated from God, and yet God shows up in grace, and he starts to tell them, these are the consequences for this sin. And he's talking to the serpent who deceived us, who John identifies as the Satan, as this, this devil, so to speak. And he says, you know, cursed are you because of what you've done. All your days, you're going to crawl on the ground and eat the dust of the earth. And I'm going to put hostility between your offspring and the offspring of the woman. You're going to bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. And so what we should do when we read scripture is you start there and we see it was so beautiful. God made everything good. And then we fractured that. We broke that. And we have fallen. And there's this separation between us and life. We've been kicked out of Eden, away from the tree of life. And so now death is what's coming for us. And it's horrific. And we see this sin coming up, rising again and again in us, and all this stuff. And it's just kind of repeating the same story throughout the rest of Scripture. And yet there's this hope in that, that God preaches the gospel in that moment, says, but one of your offspring is going to turn this all back around. And so we should read the rest of Scripture looking for that. We're looking for that seed that was promised to that woman that one of your descendants is going to crush the head of the serpent. He's going to turn this all around. And so we're reading through this and we say, okay, that's the seed we're looking for. And now you get to Abraham and this promised blessing to all the nations is going to be through him. So we think like, okay, the global population has exploded. Who's the seed? We're all descendants of Adam and Eve. Who is it going to be? Like, how, how do we know? And then God says, narrow it in. This family. Watch this family. His offspring is going to bless the nation. So someone from this family that I'm going to make into a nation. And so, again, we're reading this list. And now we go, Abraham, from childless to father of a nation, promising to bless the nations to David. And now who is David? That again, now it's a nation. Okay, there's millions of them. Who in that nation is the promised seed? Who's going to crush the head of the serpent? Because we've watched person after person throughout the scriptures just fail and prove to not be the one. Who is going to be the one to rescue us? And he gets to David, and he receives yet another promise. And it's a promise about his seed, about his descendants, that his house, his sons, would be on the throne forever. And so again, we've gone broad to narrowed to broad again, and now it's narrowed back in. We now know it's this family. One of his descendants will be on the throne forever. One of his descendants is going to be the one to crush the head of the serpent. What you also have in this is a beautiful high mark 
that he's, he's showing us this contrast as you kind of ride this story that when you get to David and his throne is established as a man after God's own heart and then his son, remember this promise of his seed and so forth, his son is gonna build a house for God and all this stuff. And so this is like the high mark. This is the best of the best of times for the nation of Israel. This is great. This is good. This is glorious. And yet, what happens next? David until the exile to Babylon. They go from the heights of Israel's history this family, watch this family, to now, you've broken the covenant. And the consequence, as I told you, it was ultimately exile. That just like it was exile from Eden, you're kicked out, that now you have been taken out of the promised land, and they go into Babylon and exile. So from the greatest height to the lowest low. And then what happens 14 generations later until the Messiah. And so you're on this wild roller coaster ride, going through the history of not just God's people, but really of all of us as we watch this and we're waiting, longing for the one who's to come and the Messiah shows up. And it's capital M Messiah. And you may, like, we hear that word if you're in church circles a lot. But what does that word actually mean? Messiah. It's actually the same as Christ. And some people actually think that Christ is the last name. Um, and, and there's no shame if you are convinced that Jesus Christ is his first and last name, um, but it's not. It's actually a title. Christ is title. It's anointed one, like Messiah. It's chosen anointed one. And so Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. And that is like, well, what does that all mean? Again, you enter into the story. What is it to be the Messiah, the anointed one? Anointed with what? And so as we look through this, this history and the scriptures, who was anointed? Um, you largely had three people who were continually anointed. You had prophets that were anointed to be a prophet, and so they would actually take oil to anoint them. You'd have priests who were anointed with oil and then could anoint others, and you'd have kings who were anointed again. And so this idea of being anointed is your, what are you literally anointed with is oil. And that's weird. Um, some of you have been anointed by the elders of beloved church. And you may come to me at some point really, really sick. And we say, well, actually, don't, don't be weirded out, but we're going to break out the essential oils. Like, we're going to rub some oil on your head. I'm like, that's kind of weird. Like, I've heard of people doing that. That's really weird. It's not weird. It's actually really beautiful. Because what is happening in that is um, you look into the law and say, well, where does oil come from for anointing? There's a recipe given, and it's quite complicated. We don't follow it, but that's okay. <laughs> but, the whole point of it is you look at the ingredients of the oil used for anointing and they're ingredients that are directly referenced in Eden. And so the whole idea, what was Eden? It's where heaven and earth were in collision and not in a bad way, in a beautiful way. That there's heaven on earth. That there's this, this beautiful parallel and, and overlap of where heaven and earth were together. And that's what we're longing for. That's why we pray, your kingdom come. Your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. And so in this place where heaven meets earth and you have these elements and then God says, now here's this cool recipe. You're gonna make oil from these things and you're gonna anoint people because that's going to signify that these people are gonna be some form of mediator between heaven and earth. That the role of the prophet in his office was to speak on behalf of heaven. The priest was to do this intercessory and this intermediary work for the kingdom of God here in this kingdom of the world. And the king was to officiate, to govern on behalf of God, that God gives the sword. And so the idea there, even now as we anoint you with oil, if you're terribly sick and things like that, is to say this is significant. And so what we are calling for is heaven to come to earth. In this moment, we set this apart as sacred and holy. 
We're asking God to do what only he can do, knowing his power in heaven is unhindered. And we want that here on earth for his power to break through. And so here we have the Messiah, anointed one. Anointed in what way? This is Jesus, who is the ultimate final prophet. And that's not to say there's not still prophecy, but he is the ultimate prophet. He is the ultimate king. He is the king of kings. And this is the ultimate priest. He is the one who stands and still is mediating on our behalf in the throne room of heaven. The once final for all sacrifice. And so Jesus, the Messiah, anointed one, is the ultimate union of heaven and earth that heaven has come to us in a child. That's the beauty, the wonder of Christmas. That he would come in such a humble way that the ultimate prophet, priest, and king would come to us dependent a baby that needs to be changed because he stinks. And he cries. And he desperately needs mom and dad to help him, to regulate his affect, to provide life and safety and comfort and all the things that a child needs, that God would step into that Messiah. He has come. And then again, like the, the, the list, the genealogy that precedes this is full of stories that would have been so deeply felt by anyone stooped in the scriptures you would hear some of these names and think, oh, great sexual scandal. Oh, that's awful. Murderer. Oh, scandal after scandal. As much as there's these really cool things, there's also these horrific things. There's these moments that in the history, as you feel the experience of going through these stories, you would say, that would be utterly hopeless. I would be in such despair to be in that place. And you have to be honest about that. As you come to what it is that Jesus, the coming hope, steps into real history. It makes all those times that could have felt hopeless suddenly hopeful. Suddenly there's great hope in there. There's great meaning in the suffering. That it's not lost. It's not wasted. That all of those hard, dark times, God was actually redemptively at work. And so you'd have hope through the darkness, hoping for the light that is to come, that is Jesus. Because this is our story too. This is our story too. We can often fall into hopeless despair. And why? And I think it's because we misplace our hope. We put our hope in the wrong thing. This is the way the psalmist says it in Psalm 33, uh, verse 16 and 17. He says, A king is not saved by a large army. A warrior will not be rescued by great strength. The horse is a false hope for safety. It provides no escape by its great power. And so the question today is, what have you put your hope in? Is it possible that you have misplaced your hope? I mean, this, this is a season for rejoicing. And yet, we're people of integrity. We're honest. And this is also a season that can be really hard for so many of us. Now, there are so many things that make this season really hard because we know of what the hope should be like. We know the joy that it should be marked by. And yet, our lived experiences, it's not that. that this, this brings up all kinds of memories of, of relational wreckage, of dashed dreams, of lost loved ones that you experience Oh, what is it like to not have that tradition because that person is no longer here? There are all these things that we can be honest today. It makes this really hard. But even those hardships, the fact that that is hard is because there is something beautiful and profound that is to come and that is what you put your hope in. That we look beyond that. But as real and unjust as this often is with the pain that's caused by disappointments, if I can press a little hard on something that may make us uncomfortable, I think that often what is happening is that misplaced hope is not in the this, 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 whatever it is that has ultimately failed, and those things could have been good things, and they failed and left you feeling hopeless. 
But I think often in our culture, it's because our hope is in ourselves. That I've put my hope in what I can do. And so when I fail, then suddenly despair sets in. And so many of the things that I, I'm really quick to think like, oh, well, that failed, and that failed, and that failed, and that's really hard. But really, it's not about that failing. It's, it's me. It's my pride being hurt. It's, it's my own despair because I put my hope in myself. Um, that's just our rampant achievement culture that we live in. That you need to look a certain way to fit the algorithm that social media throws your way so that you look right to your friends. And you see theirs, and it looks so nice. And we just don't measure up. And I, I have this expectation of how vacation's going to go. And then it doesn't go exactly like that. And suddenly I'm utterly crushed and can't see any of the beauty of what's happening around me. And we do this over and over and over and over. And ultimately, it's not because the people around you or the things around you have failed. It's because you have failed yourself. We do this. Um, there's a French sociologist, Ehrenberg, um, has this just really good quote. Um, he says, the depressed individual is unable to measure up. He's tired of having to become himself. You think about that for a moment. The depressed individual is unable to measure up. He's tired of having to become himself. You're so convinced that we should be this, and we fail to be, and it's crushing. What are we putting our hope in? Misplaced hope will fail us. So don't put your hope in something that will fail you. Don't put your hope in something that will fail you. Hope in Jesus will never be misplaced hope. As we step into Advent this week, hope is our emphasis. This week, I hope that you are obsessively thinking about hope. What is your hope? It's Jesus. Because hope in Jesus is never going to be misplaced hope. It's never going to fail you. In fact, it reframes everything. All the other hopes that could be good hopes. Like, I hope that I get to eat a really delicious lunch because I'm really hungry right now. But if I don't, and instead it's like, no, you're going to this meeting, or you're going to that, or you're going to that, and you're going to eat some granola in the truck, or whatever it is, then you know what? That's okay. Because one day, a feast is coming. A feast is coming where Jesus said, he's going to eat with me, and he's waiting to drink wine until he gets to drink it with me. That's awesome. I'm longing for that. When all things are made new. And so if my hope is ultimately in Jesus, even as these other lesser hopes fail me, that's okay. Because my ultimate hope is in the one who's going to renew all things. He will not fail me. Hope in Jesus will never be misplaced hope. That's why he came for us. This is Advent, that he arrived, he has come. God has come for us. This is our good news, the gospel, that he has come to be our hope. When everything else fails us, he will not fail us. He came so that we would have hope forever, a living hope, because he is alive. It's a hope that will never fail us. It will never be taken from us. Nothing can take that hope from me. Like, regardless of whatever life circumstances are. Like Paul says, yeah, all these awful things have happened to me. That's okay. <laughs> Actually, to live is Christ. To die, gain. <laughs> like, when you can taunt death like that. Like, oh, death, where's your sting? Like, you sing at it. Like, death is behind everything that's encroaching on us that is bad. And you're like, I'll look death in the face and say, you've got nothing. <laughs> Because to die, I get to be with my Lord. Then what hope we have to live in this moment in light of that. Man, it's so good. Why is all that possible? 
because of the gospel, because he has come. And he didn't just come to say, like, hey, I'm here with you. He said, I'm here to be in your place, actually. It's the substitution. In, in theological terms, it's the substitutionary atonement. I can't even say it. Substitutionary atonement. That it's atonement. We've talked about this at one moment. It's kind of an easy way to understand atonement, that he has made us one now. And how did he do that? By being in our place. By substituting himself for us. That he stepped in. He died the death that you and I deserve. He lived the sinless life that we were called to live. But we failed to. We don't measure up. You will never, ever measure up. All have fallen short of the glory of God. And what's the consequence? The just consequence is death. It's to be separated from God. It's to endure hell. And yet, the hope, the grace of God that comes in says, I will take your place. And so Jesus goes to the cross in our place. He stands condemned when we are the ones who should be condemned. He is the only innocent one to have walked this earth. And yet, he is murdered in our place so that we could walk free. That's why this baby came in this season. Not so, and like, I love Christmas. We will always celebrate Christmas. But he doesn't tell us like, hey, remember my birth. He says, remember my death my resurrection, that as sure as his resurrection is, is ours, that we will get to be with him forever, that he's with us, he has come to take our place. Um, John Stott, he, he said it like this, he said, the concept of substitution may be said to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation, for the essence of sin is man submitting or substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Oh, what a glorious God. Because where does that lead? Even as God condescends, meaning he comes down and with us, it ultimately leads to him having the name that is above every other name. It is about his glory. And yet it is our good. That he be glorified is our greatest good. This is our hope of glory is the way that Paul talked about it. That he would be glorified and that is our good. Oh, as we enter this season of Advent, I just want to ask you to slow down. Our discipline of the month, every month we focus on a different discipline. And this month, do you know what it is? It's Sabbath. It's an intentional rhythm of life to where you just stop working and you trust God to be at work when you are not. You trust and rest in his provision. And our limitations are accepted. And we do that intentionally, that we get to December when everyone is losing their minds. Like, look at your calendar, and we say, why don't you cut some of that out? Why don't you slow down? And actually consider what this means, that God has come, and we have hope forever. We have hope because he is faithful, and he has come Remember God's faithfulness in this waiting because again, we're between two advents. He's coming back. But you remember his faithfulness like Jeremiah said in Lamentations 3, 22 to 24. He said, because of the Lord's faithful love, we do not perish for his mercies never end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say the Lord is my portion and therefore I will put my hope in him. What we await affects the waiting. So where is your hope and what are you waiting for? Because when you know what you're waiting for, it's going to affect the experience of waiting. And we know what we're waiting for. We're waiting for him to come back. We have work to do before he returns. 
for waiting and so longing for that day when he comes back. He makes all things right and new. He's coming. Tim Keller says it like this. He says, human beings are hope-shaped creatures. How you live today is completely shaped by what you believe about your future. That's why we are inescapably creatures of hope, as Gruth has said. Because how we live today is completely determined by what we believe about our future. Our future is decided. And that totally changes the game when you know the outcome. We get to, we get to joyfully endure this, and participate in this. We get to go throughout this life with this hope that will never fail us. <laughs> His resurrection is guaranteed. We believe it, and so we have every reason to hope. This is why uh, Peter, he says this in 1 Peter 1, 3-4. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. That is our guaranteed future. And actually, the way that I can't unpack all this, I so wanted to, but for the sake of time, I can. But the way that the New Testament authors wrote about that future is that it is as good as done now. But you, right now, Christian, are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. What? As good as done, the victory is decided. Can you live in light of that? Can you have that hope? Can you put your hope in that? And by that, I mean Jesus. Put your hope in him. If you can believe that Jesus was resurrected, you have every reason to hope. So believe in hope and what is to come, and today you will be free. This means even today, you sing, you rejoice. You long for the coming of your Savior and you rejoice in the fact that he has already come once. The victory has been won. Just watching it play out. So what do you need hope for right now? Real question. What do you need hope for right now that feels hopeless? Is it your job? Is it your marriage? Is it an addiction that you're struggling with? Whatever it is. Whatever comes to mind when you think, what feels hopeless right now? What do you need hope for? I want you to consider what picture real hope that is placed in Jesus actually paints about that. Imagine that portrait. If Jesus is going to recreate all things, he's renewing all things, death, the former things will have passed away, he will look us face to face and say, I'm the one who came for you and I'm coming again and that day we'll see him face to face. Oh, we'll be with him forever, fully satisfied, enjoying the very presence of life himself, of God himself. No more sin, no more shame, no more suffering to be with God forever, glorifying him and it being our good because he loves you. And he says, you can have hope today. For whatever you feel hopeless about, you can have hope for that today. Because your hope is in him. And he'll never fail you. Can you believe this good news?